Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? He listens with his, you know, Miles got, um, what are they called? He got hearing aids. So his hearing, I know I'm so proud of him. It was really, so he had 50% hearing in each ear. It's like, um, congenital something anyway, old mixed with his dad had the same thing. Oh, um, he could not hear and it was driving me absolutely bonkers. Right. Right. That's the kind of thing that in a marriage will drive you really crazy. So he went and got them. And so the cool thing, I mean, it's helping in a lot of ways, but the cool thing is it, I mean, it's like, they're like earbuds too. So everything goes right to his, so if any electronics go right to his his phone, his, yeah. So the weird thing is though, like he won't tell me sometimes if he's listening to our podcast. And so I'm having a conversation and he won't say like, Hey, I'm listening. So he, he'll be like, you're really funny. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? What are you talking about? And he's like, this is so funny. And I'm like, yeah, but I just said, like, do you want pasta or chicken? What the fuck is wrong? And then he's like, oh, I'm listening to your podcast. And I'm like, okay, you have to tell me. But he, he didn't, he said Earl was one of his top three. Yeah, he texted me about it. So he must have liked him. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Earl was great. Earl, you know, Gosh, there's something to a real, like a pro, right? There's something to a pro who's just been in the business a long time. They know exactly kind of how to get their point across. Yeah, Earl was great. And and this, today we have nobody. I mean, you know, we have no episode airing. (laughs) And so we should just say for our listeners, it's going to be an irregular recording schedule. Yep. Um, and until it's not. Right. And, and and I really want to encourage people, like, if you like it, I mean, we love our guests. Um, but the truth is, like, with scheduling and and editing, and Gina does all the editing and all the, it it it, it can be really really challenging. And um, so we're just if you like just us without a guest, sometimes you got to tell us because that's the way. Um, that's the way we'll know and rate us and like I mean that's like we need the feedback that like Gina and I basically are enough you have to <laughs> you have to make us feel better like come you on you know what's so funny about the feedback thing like of course now that I make this podcast I'm very I'm very tuned into whether or not people are giving us feedback but I am this is karma because I've been listening to podcasts for 10 years and I never leave a review and I never rate I mean now I do but up to up till you well, know a certain point it yeah. just seems like it just seems un- it really does seem unnecessary. And I also think there's this thing about like there are certain things that when you really engage with them, you realize that everything is just an algorithm. And it's overwhelming to me personally to think like everything in my life is determined by forces sort of outside me. Yeah. So I think there is some, a little something to this kind of denial that you know, we participate in, right. in the algorithm of it all. And that if you want right. to participate positively, then you should, right? Yeah. I mean, that is the thing. Like, I never did. It's interesting. Like, I, uh, yeah, we all know how annoying it is to take the surveys, to do the feedback things. But I, 
I think they matter actually. And I also will take the time now if something is really amazing to tell them, like we have this local bookshop called Romans, right? And it's like the best and everyone is so nice that works there. And I have noticed like in the, in this hellscape that is this period of time. And we're also, I just got a, like the scary email from my financial advisor. That's like, basically we're in a recession, but anyway, talk about that in a minute, but at Romans, despite the madness, despite the fact that they're not making enough money, despite all the things they're like really nice. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to talk to the manager. And I was like, Hey, can I talk to a manager? And they were immediately panicked. And I said, no, no, I should have phrased that differently because I know I'm terrible at feedback, taking feedback. So, um, I have something good to say to the manager. They were like, Oh, okay. So they got the woman and I was like, this place rocks. Like, and she was like, Oh my God, tears in her eyes. She's like, we hear all the negative shit all day that we could be doing better, that our prices are too high. She's like, we never, hear this I'm like really because it's such a great place and they're like no never ever ever and I was like okay well is there a higher then I always say is there a higher up manager that I could talk to to tell them whoever they are and they're like no I'm pretty much the top of the line at the store and I'm like great then just know everyone here is doing their job really well and also it's such a shitty time that I'm I'm always you know I'm not surprised when people are pissed off at their job anymore like you know I don't I no longer have any type of expectation regarding customer service i'm just like okay whatever there's nobody working here or it's right. shit's all over the floor like i guess right. it's i guess it's rough to work here like i and i always just assume that there's a very valid reason yeah that things and are not going right we are in you know being at the airport was really interesting in terms of like i flew which i'm really proud of myself i flew Yay, congratulations and, and you, you survived I survived. I did not crash. Um, although I told Gina, I think I told you about the plane crash thing. Yeah. I'm in the Uber. I went to San Francisco uh, with my husband and we're in the Uber. It's only, it's like a 58 minute flight. But anyway, um, so we're in the Uber going to the hotel and I, without any hint of like jokey, irony, anything, sarcasm, whatever, I go, you know what, Miles, I am so happy I survived that plane crash. And the, the Uber driver turns around and nearly crashes us in the car. And I was like, what? And I go, oh, no, no. And he goes, no, she did not. We were not in a plane crash. I said, oh, God, I know. It, it. Well, what you meant was, I'm glad I survived my fear that we were going to be in a plane crash and that we didn't actually crash. And, that, and you were and telling me that yeah, you worked with yourself. Yeah, that's what you were telling me you were doing on the airplane, just trying to like be in an acceptance mode, right? Yeah, and just really looking at it as a 50-minute therapy session with myself on the plane as I looked out the window of the plane to try to, and I talked about this in actual therapy yesterday, of like, you know, my new thing is, and and if you listen to this podcast, which I hope you do, and if you, you're, you are, if this is what you're hearing, um, my new thing is like, get to the heart of the thing. What is the heart of the thing with my with my personal life and my writing and my my life with myself, whatever, my relationships, what's the heart of the thing? The heart of the thing is I feel that something terrible is about to happen when I'm on a plane at all times and that no one will take care of me. But I got to something deeper too, which is, and I won't be able to save or help anyone else either. 
Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, right. sure. That I will helplessly watch, like in my childhood, as shit burned down all around me and being not being told what to do, how to do it, how to help, and just feeling like, oh, I know I'm doing something wrong here because I'm not saving these people, but like, what am I, you know, that. So there's a second part to it. It's not just like that I'll be helpless and because, okay, I'm helpless, I die. Like, okay. But it's that watching a terrible tragedies and atrocities of some sort unfold and not being able to do anything about it. I.e. watching your parents flounder around and the family burnt down. I.e. watching both your parents die and not being able to do anything despite schlepping them to appointments and all the things that you do. I mean, it's all just so based in what we see. It is. I'm trying to write an essay right now about the Salma Freiburg um, coining of the term, the ghosts in the nursery. You know, so the idea being that uh, when you're raising kids, there's always the ghosts of your own parents or people who were informative and in raising you kind of playing in there. And, and, you know, like, I know it sounds really obvious and it sounds obvious and also really hard to do, but like, not just as a parent, but as a productive adult, you got to be looking at those ghosts in your nursery. You have to be trying, which is what you did on the, on the airplane. You did that for yourself. You're lucky that you're far enough in your treatment that you can do that for yourself. Let's don't let anybody be under the assumption that that could be a substitute for, <laughs> because you've been in a lot of therapy. Oh, you can't do it. I can't do it alone. Oh, no, no. I'm right. 46 and I started therapy at 21. Yeah, no, you, you had a two-year break. Yeah, yeah, you're you're a veteran, so now you can do that. You can do all the good self-talk. But for people who haven't had twenty, oh you know, decades of treatment, oh you God. start with actual therapists, and then and then after yeah, a while, don't you try could... to be your own therapist. Just like yes. don't try to be your own doctor, MD, and diagnose yeah. yourself. You know, that's a really good point. It's that I think a lot. It's it's literally taken me hundreds of plane trips to be able to do it. So, yeah, it, it, and also. The other thing I was going to tell you that I didn't tell you yet because I haven't talked to you is that on the way home, I ran into a woman that was more afraid than me. So she was on. Oh, you and that, you like that. That's good for you. Oh, yeah. So Miles was in the middle and I have to monitor looking outside. So I need a window seat and she has to be on the aisle because she has to monitor. Linda. Hi, Linda. We're like friends now. Linda is lives in the Valley and it was in San Francisco. Anyway, Linda has to be on the aisle so she can see the stewardess because if she or the steward, the flight attendants, because she monitors if how they look. And I said, now Linda, and if they're happy, she's happy. And I said, but Linda, how deep is this? Because of my childhood shit, I think they're lying to all of us. She was like, oh, oh that damn. is deep. That is so deep. She trusted them. I said, you must have trusted your parents. I said, because I don't tr- I trust that they're pretending. And she's like, oh, my God, we are so fucked up, basically. <laughs> that's, by the way, that's exactly what Aaron was talking about. We were talking this weekend about all this ghost of the nursery stuff. And he was saying his formation as a person means that he never trusts one thing anybody says ever good or bad actually he's more likely to trust it if you're saying something is terrible right but it was by the way like it was just such an eye-opening thing i can't if you would have told me you know 10 years ago we're in year like 25 or something like of our relationship i am just now learning some really important things about him because he's just now sort of understanding them for himself but it's worth continuing to interrogate 
these, right? These, these, because the more you talk about it, the more you realize all of these automatic assumptions and stuff that you're doing that, that you, that are just part of how you operate and you don't necessarily, it's, it's hard to see the way your automatic assumptions link you to oh these difficulties in life, but it's like foundational important work. So you should try. And um, I was going to tell you <laughs> that uh, when you said something about listening to the podcast, my daughter last night in the bath, she said, is your podcast funny? I say, yeah, well, Boz is really funny. I, you know, I think that she has a really funny delivery. She goes, let me listen. Let me take a listen. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. So oh, I'm God. scrolling through trying to find one that well, we're, doesn't we're have funny. a bunch of oh, F-bombs. That was funny and like didn't have a bunch of F-bombs in it. So I find this little section that I think is funny and I'm playing it for it. I'm kind of like smart. I'm really enjoying it. Right. I'm thinking like she asked, this is amazing. (laughs) 90 seconds. And she's like, okay, I got it. (laughs) Oh my God. She could care. I mean, she She was doing her best. What was so adorable about it. She was doing her best to give the kind of response yes. that I must be giving to her all of the time yes. when she's talking to me about something is so boring to me. Yes. And I'm going, okay, well, I, I got that. <laughs> That's what she was doing exactly like that. It was hilarious. Hey, let me run this by you. In the past, I've talked about tactics that we've tried in our family to try to make things better you remember i talked about the time we did that role-playing thing on thanksgiving and okay well we did something like that yesterday on sunday my middle child spent two hours handwriting a proposal to create family court Okay, I am um, okay. I'm so obsessed. Can you film it? You must film it. Whatever goes down. Okay. Well, court was in session last night. It was our. It was our. It was our first time. It was there was some snafus. I have to say, I felt like I opened a show because I wrote scripts and everything like that. Um, you did? I did. Yeah, I did. So okay. So Wait, let me tell you. What so what happened was over the weekend something happened that always happens, which is. The oldest one stole one of the other kids' food. This is just like, like, it's such a daily thing. We don't even, everybody just kind of throws up their hands about it. My dad was the same way. My dad was the same way. Just happens. My middle child. Right. There's a lot going on there. My middle child is obsessed with justice. Like, completely obsessed. Interesting. And he, when, when it happened this week, he slammed his hand down and said, we have no system of justice in this family. He does this and then nobody cares. We just move on until he does it again. So he went into his room when he should have been studying for his final exams, but that's another question. Um, and wrote, spent eight pages of handwritten. Proced- He's mad. He's so mad. Procedures. I mean, he thought of everything. Actually, it was ironclad. His plan, there was only one major flaw, which is that Aaron and I are the judges, and a lot of times that's going to be a conflict of interest because we're the ones filing the complaints. Oh. So we have well, he's filing the complaint. Well, no, he's making the system so that anybody can oh, be he's charged. Just, it's not spe- specific to this his complaint about this issue. Okay, got it, got it, got it. And he did want to litigate the issue over the weekend, but we said it's not fair to litigate something before we have 
acknowledge what this system is and we have the system. Right. That is true. That is a good point. Like you can't, you got to get the infrastructure first or the whole thing is going to go caca cuckoo. So that was Sunday night. Monday morning, we got an email from this kid's teacher about work that he hasn't turned in that he told us he did. And he told us he did, which allowed us to give him permission to do something over the weekend that he otherwise wouldn't have had. This is still the, now this is the middle kid who wants justice. Same one. Yes. Same one. So I send out a group text message. Court will convene tonight at 5 PM. Name of the accused. That's his name. Charges, perjury, fraud, and dereliction of duty. Terms that he laid out for us. And we had court last night. Oh, um, oh my gosh. Amazing. It was amazing. So. Who was the lawyer? Tell me all So Aaron and I were the judges and we decided that we needed to have an appeals process. So my mom is the Supreme Court. (laughs) Anybody who doesn't like their uh, verdict can appeal it to the Supreme Court. Um, My daughter was the bailiff. She made her, she swore everybody, she swore the witnesses in, hand on the Bible. (laughs) This is the most amazing thing I have ever heard in my life. She, she introduced us. We, we wore our bathrobes. You know, we don't have justice robes, so we wore our bathrobes. She said, hear ye, hear ye. Court is now in session. The Honorable Justices Krasner and Polici presiding. We came in, we sat down. Okay, so the middle one wanted to represent himself. Bad idea. Terrible idea. Always, Miles always has it. The worst. In this case, in this case, uh, even though I always agree with Miles about, I mean, I agree with Miles that that is always the case. In this case, he was better off representing himself because I assigned uh, my oldest child to be the DA, the prosecutor. Oh, the prosecutor. Oh. Half, and he didn't care about it. He didn't want to do it. So I had to write his little script for him to give his statement, which he didn't know anything about until he was in the middle of reading it. And then and in the middle of reading it, he took the defendant's position. He decided he wanted to defend the defendant. He completely ruined the case. OMG. So he, okay. So he tanked the case, the state's case. But, um, but the middle kid did such a phenomenal job he had evidence he had witnesses he had facts it was all written out and in his closing argument he said and in closing none of this is valid because none of us signed the contract that we were going to do court this way he had a real plot twist at the end Today on the podcast, we are talking to Gary Mills. Gary is a writer, director, producer, performer, and uh, owner of a successful company. He's got great insights and is a great storyteller. So please enjoy our conversation with Gary Mills. Okay, Tina, start us off. Okay, Gary Mills, congratulations. You survived theater school. Thank you very (laughs) much, I did. You are, you stayed in Chicago. You're, are you originally from Chicago? No, I'm from Minnesota. I grew up in a very small town about, you know, five hours outside of uh, Chicago. And uh, yeah, I came from, came from Minnesota and came to Chicago. Which town in Minnesota? It's a little town called Lewiston down by Rochester, down by Winona. Yeah, I and, know. So yeah, when you're from the Midwest, you just end up all the places. Yeah, right? so, yeah. yeah. Where did okay, you where, did you grow up in Chicago? Both of you? 
In Evanston. In Evanston, and, okay. And um, Gina was in California. California. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. But we, yeah, like I would go to Bemidji. We sure. would go all kinds of places. Paul Bunyan. For camps and things. Paul Bunyan. Oh, yeah. Of Paul course. <laughs> so did you, when you, by the time you were applying for theater schools, had you been doing theater for a long time? Was this a foregone conclusion that you'd go to an acting conservatory? Yeah. My, my town, even though it was a thousand people, had an amazing drama department and an amazing drama teacher who I'm still in touch with today and who used to come out and see shows in Chicago. And so I started doing theater in this little farm town. And then I, I spent the summers in Fargo, which is where I was born. Mm-hmm. And there's a performing arts school there called Trollwood Performing Arts School. And so I would do that in the summer and I'd do these big shows that would have you know 2,000 people a night, uh, summer stock outside all summer. And so I was super excited as a 15, 16 year old to pursue this acting thing and pursue theater. Okay. As an occupation, I have to say, like there, you are not the first. We just had someone on also that was from a farming town. The amount of amazing mentors and teachers that come out of these small towns is astounding. Hundred percent. By by and large, it's more than the big cities where these small towns have these like drama teachers that like really give a shit. How does this happen? Yeah, I don't know. And the funny thing is, he was the English teacher in this small town. He got drafted to go to Vietnam. Went, fought in Vietnam. He came back to his teaching position after Vietnam. And on the bottom of his slip that when he returned, it said English teacher and it said drama instructor. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm a drama instructor. I don't know how to be a drama instructor. And he just figured it out and he learned it. And he was amazing. He, we, I remember seeing Death of a Salesman, 12 Angry Men, all these amazing plays in this little town. It was, it was always an event when the, when the school play went on. Oh, like, I oh, the love- school was doing those plays? Yeah, the school, the high, the high school? school was doing these plays <laughs> in this little farm wow. town. We were doing like, we were doing like, you know, the review of Winnie the Pooh and you, you were, were doing Dark 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 Dark. Dark. Thank you. So, the other thing is like, I would love to have that guy on our show. He's still around. Oh, right? he's still around. He's, he's amazing. Okay. We're going to get his info. Yeah, okay. for sure. Yeah. So and can I, can I just like, say what? this about wow. this? I am such a huge fan of your podcast and I am shocked that I had not heard about it until maybe a month and a month and a half ago. I'm with Carolyn Herdeman, who's been a guest oh, yeah. and who I went to school with. We've also done shows for the last 30 years together. And we're at this retreat for Collaboration Theater where we're both company yes. members. And she tells me about this podcast, I Survived Theater School. I was like, wait a second. DePaul Theater School? She goes, yeah, it's by two grads of the theater school. I'm like, that is the most brilliant idea. I've got to check it out. And so I'm addicted. It's my workout podcast. I go between this yes. and the daily and fly on the wall with David Spade and Danny Carvery. Yes, yes. But I love it so much. It's almost oh, like Gary. it's like those those Scientology shows where they get out of Scientology and they do these expose about what it was like to be in Scientology. Because I really don't think you, yes. un, you it's hard to explain theater school to someone who didn't go through it. Right. And the I podcast does a great job. And you're both phenomenal interviewers. So thank you so much. Congratulations. Oh, I really and I very much appreciate so being, being on. I've been excited of to do course. this for a while. Okay. Of course. Okay, so let's continue with your. That's amazing and lovely to hear. So, were you the star, Gary? Were you like the kid that was the star of the school? I was the kid who was fighting for those leads every time, and I loved, 
you know, being an actor and I was a writer, I was a playwright back then. I would write little, really? little short stories and little plays. Yeah. So I was, I was the drama school or the drama kid and the teacher really was great about mentoring me and helping me out. And I, I'm glad there were no videotapes of the performances back then. Well, uh, Cause right, he was very strict right. about, we're not allowed to videotape any of the performances. It says so here in the rights and which is great. Cause I don't think I necessarily want to see myself in, in Oklahoma rights, or rights. any of those shows. Wow. Okay. So I was going to ask you, you did Oklahoma, which I did too. Who were you in Oklahoma? Of course I was Curly. Of yeah, who, were you? Curly. who were you? Yeah. Oh, I was, I don't know, like a, <laughs> in the chorus. My story about Oklahoma is um, we had real, you know, bales of hay with the hooks and during a big dance number, this kid got jostled or something like that and put one of those hooks through his foot. Oh! Wow. And we didn't tell anybody because we all decided the show must go on. Oh I mean, my can gosh. you imagine if I found out that that was my child doing that? I probably would have wanted Horrifying. to sue somebody. But we, he, he just he wrapped a bandana around it and kept right? dancing like for the rest real, of the show. <laughs> a real trooper right there. And also like a tetanus shot needed. Uh, right yeah, away. yeah, yeah, seriously. Yeah. Okay, so what besides Oklahoma were you in? So we did, you know, the one act. I don't know if you did the one act. That was a big deal where you do the competitions and you'd go to the local college and all day you'd see plays of the other schools it was the greatest a bunch of those i can't remember any of the ones they were they were not the greatest plays we did one arthur miller one act elegy for a lady i was in that but uh yeah i did the mouse that roared that was a that was a play a comedy peter sellers did the movie uh oh, come below come below your horn was oh, yeah. was one of neil simon and then at that performing arts school we laugh about it now we did a production of the king and i in 1986 huh? With all uh, white no actors, yeah, of with all white yes. actors, which listen to the, the Jeremy Owens episode, listen to that episode. Cause he talks about playing a, an Asian person. He's white, Asian person in drag. Oh, like, it was a whole yeah, thing. yeah. Wearing a kimono. That so, whole, so whole we, deal. yeah, that's, that is a common theme of the, the do, past. Do you remember your audition for DePaul? I do. And that's one of my favorite things. Uh, I loved when you talk to Lee Kirk about, that as well. First off, first off, this is the other thing that blew my mind when I started listening to your podcast is people mentioning the marketing material that hooked them in and made them come to DePaul. I thought I was the only one who just, it got me and it was freaking over. But I remember in the mail when I, I guess I had declared theater is going to be my major. I started getting bombarded with all these different schools sending their brochures. DePaul's for my year was like a booklet and it had color yeah. pictures of these beautiful Nansibula costumes and these, and it's all lit. And then they had all the famous alumni and the awards they're winning and the movies they're in. And I'm like, well, obviously this is the place I got to go because this is where all the successful people go. Amazing. Whoever okay, that person was so, in charge, right. they should have gotten a raise. So John Bridges took the photos, I know, and Nan and the and then the, the production photos, he took them. But I'm wondering who was actually doing the marketing. Melissa Meltzer. I don't know who it was, but that person single-handedly is responsible for at least 50 people 100%. going to that school. 100%. Yeah. So okay. I, I'm a kid in a small town. I want to get out because I know if I'm going to do this, I got to go somewhere. I would love to have gone to Tisch, too scared to go all the way to New York as an 18-year-old. Yeah. But hey, how about Chicago? 
So I decided to apply to DePaul, to the theater school, because that brochure. And at the time, I don't know if it's changed now, you needed two monologues, classical and comedic. Yeah, not not necessarily my wheelhouse. So so I did, I, I didn't know where to go. So I went to my library, the local school library in my little town. They had maybe this many plays to choose from. This is pre-internet. And so I took out a Neil Simon collection and then I'm paging through and I find in Last of the Red Hot Lovers, there's a monologue. I'm like, oh, well, this is the only monologue I can find. I'm going to do it. Completely wrong for for me. I should never in a million years have done it. It's like a 50-year-old man who's having an affair with stupid. And so there I've got my comedic monologue. And now I got to find a classical. Oh. Well, I don't want to do Shakespeare because I don't know how to do that. So uh, George Bernard <laughs> Shaw, there's a collection of George Bernard Shaw. That sounds, he sounds old. So let me look through. And I find a monologue from Man and Superman, The Devil. Yes. It's the monologue from The, the Devil is the character. Nice. So I go, right. I go, got yes. my monologues. Here we go. So two terrible, okay, wait, I have terrible to choices. I have a question. I have a yeah. question. Gary, Gary, Gary. You're telling me that they had, okay, so. I hope they changed it that it had to be classic and comedic because if not, maybe it was contemporary. Just, Could it have been contemporary? Yeah, because I did a play about sexual assault, and that maybe and a this classic. is a long time, so maybe you're right. Maybe it okay. was classic okay. and contemporary. I'm just looking back self-centeredly at like why I did a thing anyway. Okay, so you're like I got my two. Pieces. I got my two. I work them up. I get ready to go, and then I come to Chicago. My parents and I drive to Chicago, and. I'm terrified, right? I'm nervous because I'm the, you know, the big fish in a little pond. Now I'm coming to this thing. My parents have expectations of what college is. So we pull up to DePaul and they're expecting, you know, the college campus. You see in the movies with the rolling hills and the chapel and the beautiful, and it's nothing like that. It's spread out. It's not even half as nice as it is now. And they're like, oh, yeah, no. this is a dump. This looks terrible. Well, let's go, <laughs> let's go look at the theater school. Maybe that will be a state-of-the-art oh, no! facility that is going to be worth this expensive tuition. We go to that place. And at the time, it was like an elementary school, right? Or a, yeah, whatever, oh, yeah, whatever it used to be. Too, yeah. Literally nothing special. Then they're like, well, where's this magnificent theater where you're going to perform at? And they say, we don't have one of those either. Let's go to the commons. So back, I think the commons was gone by the time you were there. There was a theater yeah, in the Commons. That's where they did. That's where they did the main stages, right next to what's the dorm? Uh, I can't remember. Uh, Corcoran, Corcoran Hall. Anyway, they did it in this old, this old building, uh, and that's where they did shows. So at the time, uh, there was a play going on, "Curse of the Starving Class," and they said, "You know, oh, yeah. you're coming into the audition. Why don't you?" Oh, Oh, see the play. And I go, that would be great. Sam Shepard, right? Sam Shepard. So I want to come back. I want to come back to this, this story here in a second, because it involves John C. Riley, which ties into another story I've never told publicly. It's probably time I publicly tell this John C. Riley story. Bring it on. We got the exclusive. It's the exclusive. So anyway, my audition, I go there and here's what I remember. I don't know what you remember, but I was terrified. (laughs) You got your little number or whatever it was. The first thing they did, they took us into the movement room and we watched a film. Now, I don't know how long they did this film, but the film was a documentary about the theater school and how it is the West Point of theater school. So I think it was on PBS. Have you seen it? Have you heard about it? 
no, I, I gotta never, watch this. Yeah. You know nothing about so it. So it was very intimidating. I think it was meant to like impress us about the school, but it was super intimidating. And so all the people there auditioning were watching this, watching this film. It finishes, made me even more nervous. And then they gave you your order of when you go in. I think we did some movement to music. We did some movement exercises together. And now it's time to do the audition. At this point, I'm terrified. All these kids around me who I'm meeting, they've done movies and they've done Broadway this. And, and, and I'm like, well, I did the King and I in a place in Fargo. So I felt like a total, total imposter. So I go in for the audition in the movement room. All I remember, I think it was John Bridges and Phyllis. Did you, did you all have Phyllis? Yes, she's yeah. still there, FYI. She's still, yes, <laughs> she's, she's still there, that's true. And she directed that Curse of the Starving class I'm going to talk about. And so I go in and I do those two auditions, those two monologues, stone face. I can't tell if it's horrible, whatever. I leave and my stomach is just in such agony. I was like, that obviously didn't go well because they didn't say good job. They didn't say anything. I said to my parents, God. let's go, let's get out of here. I said, I'm never coming back right. to this place. I said, it didn't go well. I'm not going to get in. Let's get out of here. So they go, well, should we go tour? And I go, I don't know. I'm not going here. It's done. I'm, I didn't get in. <laughs> Absolutely not. Let's go. So we head back to Minnesota. And this, because I auditioned the first slot in October. I let, let it go. I let DePaul go. And then we're driving, I think, up to Fargo for Thanksgiving or something. And we're, we pick up the mail. And we're in the car getting ready to drive. And there's a little letter from DePaul. And I'm like, Here's the rejection letter. And they're like, open it. I go, I don't want to open it. I know it's a rejection. I open it up and it's, you've been accepted to DePaul, which was a shock. So then my, my attitude about DePaul turned around a little bit. <laughs> once, once they wanted me, now, nice I'm, now I'm interested. Uh, so yeah, so that was the story about getting in. And another funny story was we, we, when we came, we, we, the only place to really stay was there was a, on Clark and Diversity, there was a Days Inn. And that's where they recommended, there's the closest hotel, so you don't have to be downtown. So this is us in the big city, right? And we stay at this hotel. So as we're going to sleep that first night, you know, lock your doors, you're in the big city. We hear through the vents of this hotel, these two people screaming at each other. Yeah. Yeah. That and I'm like, a great neighborhood. I'm like, then. what's, it no, not- it wasn't a great neighborhood back then. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And my, my, we're listening. We can actually hear what they're saying. And it's these two guys oh threatening each God. other. And then there's, they're breaking things and they're threatening <gasps> each other and there's violence. <laughs> and so my dad's like, we have to do something. He goes, we have to do something. So he calls down to the front desk. He goes, hello, hello. Yes. I'm in room such and such. Someone is being murdered in the, in the room <laughs> below us, it's coming through the vent. You've got to go do something and save this person. They said, uh, sir, it's okay. There's a theater in the basement of oh. this hotel. They're doing a production of American Buffalo. It's a play. And oh so that was one of my first introductions to Mamet. That's and to, brilliant. Yeah. Oh, here's the difference between your dad and my dad. My dad would never have thought that it was his job to do something about it. He would have just ranted and said something racist that, that would have been the end <laughs> no matter what race these people were he would have found yeah. a way to make it into a racist thing okay so wait did you go watch we did so no. so before we left we, we went and watched the show and it was fantastic i can't remember the company i can't remember the actors but it was fantastic well there is I never a knew chance, there was a theater there there's a chance that actually mammoth could have been there because what year is this this was 87 
it might have been the organic uh, or remains. I I wouldn't be shocked if yeah, because eighty. You might be right. I think Mamet was. I bet you he was there. I bet you he was there because I think that's wow. around the time it was it was released, and he was anyway. The point is, you're part of Chicago theater history, right there. Right. That's so cool. That's so cool. So uh, day one, you're whatever you're in movement class what's going through your mind is this what you expected it to be what well, once you, i'm in the did school you know yeah yeah, like, yeah yeah i had no here's why i think they liked me is because i came in a blank slate what right. do you, want you were me really to do? a blank slate what do you want me to do i take orders and i will do whatever you want so let's go i'm not going to challenge anything i'm not going to push back you tell me to do this i'm going to do it and i'm going to love it so i think they love that aspect about it frankly i love asking theater school grads that i see now if you could go back in time would you do it again Mm. what's your answer? Knowing what you know now, did it question. give you what you wanted? Would you do Northwestern? Would you look somewhere else? Oh, no. I mean, I would have been fucked anywhere I went. Like, I don't think it was the school, right? I think I would have done it. Yeah, because because I'm one of those people that really believes that I cannot be where I am sitting in this booth here today in Pasadena if I didn't do it. So I would do it again. Yeah. I might have drank less and nicer to people and myself, sure. but other than that, I would have done it. You know, I would have done it. I would have applied to more than one school, <laughs> um, but I don't regret going to yeah. DePaul at all. No matter how much, you know, I've exposed about the negative in it. It's I've done it in this at the same pace that I've exposed the negative in me or in systems or in the world, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't unique to DePaul. It was just where, you know, yeah, I, I to go, but what about you? I agree. I, I uh, the parts of it I didn't like were, you know, I came from a place where the directors, the teachers were super nurturing and empowering and encouraging. And there was literally none of that when I was at DePaul, I think I got complimented yeah. one time. I remember one compliment I got, from Rick Murphy, he saw an intro I did and we were at the urinal next to each other and he gave me a compliment. And I'm like, there's one for the banks. I'll keep what, that. I'll keep what that. What did he say? Keep... What did he say? I you did he, a good job? Yeah, it was just like great performance or something like that, which oh. I'd never heard. And I'm like, oh, wow, I'll take that. That was amazing. Um, so my thing, I would do it again, uh, even though I, I didn't really flourish. I was a two warning person. I don't know if you all got the warnings. More than two. I probably had four. I was a two warning person. We haven't talked about the cuts yet, but I don't think I knew about the cuts before I started school. They don't think that was like a little secret. That was a little secret they kept. And it was terrifying once once we learned that that was a thing. And I didn't flourish in that environment because what I did is when I knew that you could get kicked out and I didn't want to get kicked out, my choices and my risk taking got really small. My thing was, what's the minimum I can do to just not get kicked out? And that's not what they're looking for. So what happened is every time I got that freaking letter on the thing saying you're on warning, which is not a good oh, feeling. God, you remember that? Right. I forgot about that. They put him up there. Really? Because everybody knows what they are. So you know exactly who's getting warning. Uh, when I got that, what happened was you'd meet with your, whoever your advisor was, and they'd basically go, you have one quarter left to try to turn this ship around or else you're gone. And what it did for me is I had nothing to lose. So I always ended up taking a huge risk and just going oh, for good. broke 
And oh, I got good. in, I got back, I got invited back every time. So that taught me, that taught me something great there yeah. of don't, you've got to take big risks. That's what they're looking for. Okay. But wait a minute, wait a minute. What is the choice point? This is so fascinating to me because I'm told that and I shut down and I'm like, I disassociate. So what is it inside of you that goes, oh, I have one quarter left. I might as well make a big choice. Like, what was your thinking? I think it was just the stakes of this is your chance. You're gone. If you do what you've been doing, playing it safe, blending into the woodwork, not not Uh going big, you're gone. So Uh you can either go big and, and go home or you can not go big and go home. So I just right. made a big choice. Like my final scene was always something way out of what I should be doing, just going for it and putting everything I had. And I, I was able to, you know, make my way back through, which was, was great. What uh, did you, I mean, I'm sure there's many things, but what, what is something that you learned about yourself as a result of having gone to theater school? I think the biggest thing was, and the thing I loved, so that's what I didn't like about DePaul is I didn't feel like it was a, a the, the, the teachers were nurturing. You would always find the one teacher, like, I don't know who yours were. For me, it was Don Ilko. I don't know if he was still there when you oh, were there. Oh, of course. And he, for whatever reason, from the beginning, he was my first year teacher. He saw something in me. And really always had my back. And then Michael Sokoloff, he might have been gone too. He was the oh, big he was gone. He was the big wild combat teacher with the tattoos and the flowing hair and just a wild man. He he really liked me too. We 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 connected very well. But then I didn't really have any champions other than than those two. Uh, the thing I loved most about the experience was the immersive nonstop seeing of theater in Chicago. Mm. Every night there'd be a workshop, a playwork show. There'd be a puppet show, free theater, Goodman dress rehearsal you could go to. And so we saw everything. We went, this was pre-internet. So we went to everything. We'd see Brian Dennehy in a play there. We'd see, you know, Second City. You'd see all the, you know, Stephen Colbert and those, all those. It was fantastic. And that's the thing I love most is I learned that, wow, there's all these opportunities. There's all these good theater, bad theater. And I think discipline. Wait, Gina, Gina, did you see theater? Did you see theater? I didn't see no, shit. No, I couldn't. I couldn't afford it. And every time I free. went to that school, no, I was, was free. I couldn't afford it either. They, had, they would always have free theater on the board. And it was like usually dress rehearsals for Victory Gardens is opening a show. I, need an I'm telling you, I don't think they did that for us. I'm telling you right now, either that or I was just too busy drinking malt liquor. Yeah, like, I, I didn't drink a lot of malt liquor. That probably was uh, probably a that good might thing. might have put you in the right direction. Um, okay, so anyway, so you, okay, so great. So you loved that, that you loved were like it. really immersed in live theater. I think that's really important, especially since we're going to be actors, especially since Absolutely. theater school. That was smart you did that. Yeah. And so every night I felt like we were, a bunch of us would go see theater. We'd go to whatever. We didn't even question what a puppet theater. Great. We're going to go see that. And so just seeing all that and just immersing, because you really did live, breathe, think, sleep theater. It was, it was a lot, right? Which reminds me, uh, this is a funny thing I want to mention. A couple years back, one of my high school classmates from my small town, we were having a Facebook like a Facebook argument, but he's very oh. conservative, like a QAnon kind of conspiracies. Uh-huh. Biden didn't sure, win the election. Sure. Uh-huh. Democrats eat babies. Uh-huh. And so we're having this debate, this argument 
on his, I was on, actually on my, I think it was on my Facebook back when people used to argue and debate on Facebook. I don't think they do anymore, but we're going through yeah. this, you know, we're arguing back and forth and debating. And at one point in the debate, he said to all the people who were watching this thread, he said, don't mind Gary. What does he know? He went to drama school uh-huh, and I thought it was right. the greatest <laughs> burn of all time. Don't mind Gary. He went True. to drama school. True. And I, mean, I died laughing so hard that I private message him. I'm like, dude, you win. That's the greatest burn of all time. Have a good day. <laughs> good luck with Q9. You're awesome. But I told my daughters that it is their favorite burn of all time. And they use it on me sometimes. Uh, is, what do you know? You went to drama school. On uh, Upon your graduation, where were you at? Did you think... Here I come. I'm going to take the world by storm. Of course. Yes, of course. We all did. Now, at that time, we did the showcase. Remember the showcase? I don't know. Where where were yours? Oh, oh. We had uh, just L.A. and Chicago. Okay. So we just had Chicago and New York. We did not do L.A., oh, which we okay. were disappointed about. But went out to New York. We did that. That was fun, running around New York. How did it go for you? Like, like okay, was Jane Alderman your Yes, of course. She- Jane Alderman okay. was great. She was a big champion, uh, big fan do of hers. Do you remember what you did for your show? Yes. I actually picked a good one. I did, there was a Christian Slater movie called uh, Pump Up the Volume, where it was almost like, yeah, it's like, it's like talk radio for the, you know, remember the Eric Bogosian movie for the, for the teen set. That's kind of what it was. And he has this great closing monologue. I'm like, there you go. He's a young teenager. Great monologue. Yeah. So I did that. Nobody had ever done it before. That was cool. And I got some interest. I had an agent in Chicago who I really liked, who Jane had set me up with. And the mistake I made was after the showcase, all these agents from William Morris and Gersh and everything wanted to meet with me. And my agent in Chicago said, oh, don't bother. Now you don't need to meet with them. If you want to go to New York, I got people that are connected. I can set you up. So I blew off those meetings. I didn't go to those meetings. That was a big mistake. So here's Mm. the thing. Like, we all have these moments, I think, where it's like, I, I have a similar one where Carrie Grant's daughter, Jennifer Grant, wanted me to meet with her team in LA. And I literally went, no, I'm not, I don't want to do that. I'm not oh, going to no. do that. And she was like, wait, you, you don't want to come to LA and meet with like the best? It was like some CAA version. And I was like, she was like, you remind me of a young Patricia Arquette. Like, you should do it. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to stay in Chicago. Right. What in the fuck is wrong with I know. me? I I. But anyway, you were protecting we, yourself. We, you were, we've, yes. we've, since, we've since learned that you were protecting yourself. You're right, from you're right. But for yeah. you, Gary, you were like listening to this guy who was like your new guy. Yeah. And I so thought he knew that. what, I thought he knew what was best. And you know, maybe in the end he did. So I didn't meet yeah. with any of those people. I came back Chicago. And so Gina, one of the things we were talking about before we got on the air was the Webster fitness uh, element <laughs> to this story. And I know, I think, that's where I met Lee Kirk, I believe, because Lee was a little bit behind me. So Webster Fitness was my waiter job during DePaul. And then when I graduated, ready to take on the world as an actor, the owner, the ownership changed. And the new guy said, I don't really know how to run this business. You've been here for four years. Why don't you run it for me and be the manager? I said, no, man, I'm an actor. I'm a playwright. He said, yeah, you can do that too, but just run it when you're not doing that. And I go, so I can come and go whenever I want? He goes, sure. I go, can I hire my actor friends to work, to work here? He goes, yeah, of course. So it was the greatest job and I just hired all my actor friends and it was a, the cheapest health club 
on the north side. It's so cheap. So all it's the so actors, cheap. so every actor in town, I mean, Gillian Anderson was a member there. David Koechner from Saturday Night Live. I remember, oh my God, I remember Koechner. reading in the paper uh, and calling him going, dude, I guess you got to cancel your membership. I just saw you got, you know, you're on Saturday Night Live now. So it was great. That was a really cool place to work. A lot of great actors came through there. And that was my waiter job for, you know, I never, have you, have you all waited tables? I've never waited tables. I yes, was a host. Yeah. Gina really did it. Bacinos. Remember Bacinos? Bacinos, the greatest. Yeah. No, no. I worked at Jerome's oh. and I worked at Charlie's Ale House. Yep. Oh, that's right. Charlie. I'm thinking and of Charlie's Ale House. Rigoletto. Okay. What's your story that you're ready to tell publicly? Yeah. So, oh, yeah. So yeah. John C. Riley, right? One of the, maybe one of my favorite alumni who's come out of DePaul. I'm a huge fan, yeah. he, great actor, been in some amazing stuff between Dewey Cox, Boogie Nights, the greatest, right? So 1987, I come to audition at the school, my first time in Chicago, and John Bridges says, there's a play going on of students, you should go see it, it's Sam Shepard, Curse of the Starving Class. Well, Sam Shepard at the time was one of my favorite playwrights. I was reading all of his things, I loved him. So I'm like, let's go see it. So the cast was, so Phyllis directed, the cast was... The main character is Larry Yando, no Larry Yando, right? Larry Yando, uh, Jackie Williams, John C. Riley, and I can't remember who the daughter was. But anyways, great cast. So I watched this show. Phyllis directed it. Was great. You know, colorblind casting. The family's half black, half white. Yeah. Sam Shepard, you know, John C. Riley coming out with the, the sheep naked, all that. And so yeah. I remember going back to Chicago and writing John Bridges uh, a, a letter saying, thank you for, you know, thanks for having me for the audition. Thanks for the tickets, you know, trying to be the, you know, polite, you know, guy to, that did everything right. So, and I said, Hey, the, the curse of starving class was amazing. I don't know who that kid is who played, was it Wesley? But West, West, but oh my God, that kid is going to be huge. He has something amazing, riveting. So that was my first encounter with John C. Riley. Then I'm in the school, maybe three years later, my junior, senior year, John C. Riley's blowing up, doing casualties of war and some of these movies. He comes back to do, remember Chicago live when they would have people come in, movie stars, or did you not have that? Well, we had, we had people come to our school, like Brandon, he came to our school. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if Lawrence it was called. Fish, Lawrence Fish, Fishburne came and just sat in the in the downstairs pit. Yeah, so we would have this right. thing called Chicago Live where Gene Hackman, Marine Sta- uh, Gene Stapleton from On the Family, oh Brian Dennehy, just all these amazing people would come and they would talk and then answer questions and you get to meet them. And so it was great. And so he came and did that. And then he came into our acting class and he did improv with us. So now this guy oh, I saw... Now I'm getting to do improv with him and talk to him. And it's really great. He's like a South side guy, super chill, super great. So then uh, jump forward like a couple of years later, I'm doing a play with Rick Murphy that Jane Alderman produced with this group called the dog boys, which oh, were, you were yeah, the dog yeah boys. it was one of the dog boys. So there were eight of us, I think that Jane Alderman sort of handpicked and was, you know, we did these improv yeah. shows, Rick Murphy directed John C. Riley came to the show because he was a disciple of Rick Murphy and loved it. We went out for drinks. It's great. So then now let's jump forward in time, maybe 20 some years. John C. Riley is an Academy Award nominated, you know, actor. His career is amazing. I'm in London and I'm at a place called the Groucho Club, which is a private club 
in London. Very shishi. It's like there's Jude Law sitting in the corner. There's the Spice Girls over there. It's that kind of place. I'm there with a friend of mine who's a British actor who's a member. So we're in there and we're sitting there one day and the front door opens. Who walks in? There's not really anybody in there. John C. Riley with two other people. He's got a hat on. He's like all dressed. And I'm like, holy shit, that's John C. Riley. Goes and sits down. I say to my friend, my friend goes, do you know him? I go, kind of. I said, you know, I knew him back in the day. I improved with him. I met him. We have a lot of people in common. My writing partner at the time was a musician who played his birthday, his kid's birthday party like six months uh-huh. before. So there's another icebreaker. Uh, I have all the th- times I met him and that curse of the starving class icebreaker to Paul theater school grad in London icebreaker. And the other thing was on top of the best one of all is I had read on the theater school website or something yeah, that they, they were doing a production of Our Town at the theater school in yeah. the new building. And they were rotating in famous alumni to play the stage manager. And oh, I had right. just yes. read yeah. that day that John C. Riley, I think it was like the next day or, or maybe a day and a half later, he was going to be performing that at DePaul. And I knew that. So I'm the, I have all these icebreakers. And so my friend is like, are you going to go say hi? I'm like weighing it. I'm like, I don't know. Should I go say something? Should I go? I have all these connections to him. Should I go say something and say hello? The answer is yes. Just go over. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so part of this private club is people go there because they don't like to be bothered, right? Because it's all famous people oh. or shishi people. Oh. And so it's normal. Like no phones are allowed. No pictures are allowed. It's that kind of thing. Oh. So I weigh it for like five minutes. I'm like, gosh, I don't know. Should I go? Should I go? And then finally I go, God damn it. You know what? If you don't shoot, you can't yeah. score time to go. Yeah. Be bold. Let's do this. And so I, and so my buddy goes, I'm going to hit the restroom. I go, cool. I'm going to go say hi to him. I get up okay. and I confidently walk over March over. to John C. Riley. I can't remember the introduction, how I said hello, whether it was Mr. Riley or John. So many yeah. You're but so- I said, oh, um, oh, I just, actual yeah. Yeah. Gina, Gina can see uh, where, where the train's headed. So I say, okay. I end up saying, Hey oh, John, whatever I said, I just wanted to say hello from a fellow theater school alumni and Rick Murphy disciple. Cause I knew he loved Rick Murphy, worshiped Rick Murphy. Yeah. And he looked at me like I had taken a dump and held it out in my hand for him to sniff. He looked at me and he said, he said, yeah. And at that moment, I'm like, Oh God, if I could reel back time, if I could just go back in time and take this moment back and make a different decision. And, but I'm stuck. I'm in it. And I said, uh, well, now you're in it. So he goes, (laughs) so he goes, yeah, he goes, yeah. And I said, yeah, theater school. I said, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Rick Murphy. He said, "Uh uh-huh. I said, yeah, I just wanted to say congratulations on your career. You know, all the success. Uh Uh-huh. And, uh, I saw you're doing, uh, you're doing our town tomorrow. You, you must have to fly back. Yeah. Uh-huh. <gasps> anyway, just wanted to say congrats on the success and I wish you the best and sorry to bother you. Have a great day. Uh-huh. And I walk away and I wanted to dig the deepest hole and just crawl yes. into it. And now in his defense, who knows what was going on? He could have had something he was dealing with. He could have been having a terrible day. But oh my god, he was at the Groucho Club. He, he was at he, the Groucho. Somebody probably got fired. Yeah, and <laughs> also, so that's. Well, I got it oh. back for you. You, you yeah. know my yes. story, my John C. Yeah. Riley story. Oh, what is it? Have you ever heard it? Oh, I, I mean, everyone has heard it. I will just say that he came to our. Don't worry, I got him. Oh, well, that was before. But anyway, he came to our showcase, came up to me, 
afterwards and said, I, in LA and said, I loved your work. And I blurted out, I hated boogie nights. And he said, what? (laughs) And I said, I hated boogie nights. And he said, why? And I, I said, because it was sex. I made something up, right? <laughs> Listen, Gary, I never saw Boogie Nights. I had diarrhea of wow. the mouth. And I inherently said a stupid thing because I was scared that it was controversial and I was pushing him away. And he was trying to help me and could have launched my career probably. Yeah. And I fucking said, and then he dejectedly walked away. Like, okay, have a nice night. And Honestly, it must be so exhausting to be a celebrity because everybody is, every interaction right. you have is laden with people spending 15 minutes coming up with icebreakers. Or saying shit like this. Yeah, or this trying to hand you a script or pitching you a project. I've literally never approached a celebrity in my entire life and I've been around hundreds of them. I'm frightened to death of exactly what happened to you but i but you it's it's scarring right because yeah it was super what the business is here's how business is making connections to people absolutely here's how scarring it is so my favorite artist since i was a teenager was so i'm a huge talking heads fan you're probably a little too young for that but a huge talking head and david byrne right the leader of the talking heads wrote all the songs who's gone on to win oscars and do broadway shows i'm just a giant fan my kids know i'm a huge fan of talking heads and david byrne and caught it to paul at corcoran hall i had a big poster of david byrne in my dorm room and so the first play i ever had off broadway produced off broadway was in it was like 2012 or something like that where 27 years of writing plays I finally get one off Broadway at the Atlantic Theater Company, right? Oh, oh wow. shit. Yeah. That's it's no a small shit. Yeah, huge, big, really big deal. I'm super excited. So I say to my mom and dad and my kids, I go, hey, everybody, we're going to New York for this play because it took 27 years to get a play off Broadway and it's never probably going to happen again. So we're going to go as a family. We're going to enjoy it. So I take the whole family out to New York to see the opening at the Atlantic. And I'm walking around. We're walking around Greenwich Village just tourist being tourist, right? My dad's got the fanny pack, you know, he's got the, the fanny leather fanny pack to put all his things in. We look like huge tourists. So we're walking around, we're at a stoplight in Greenwich village and it's a long stoplight. I got the whole crew. There's like six of us. And I look to my right and there's David Byrne on a bike. Like I could touch him. Like I could put my arm around his shoulder. That's how close he was. And there was the moment of, so I've written two fan letters in my whole life. One was to David Byrne when I was in high school. He was doing a, uh, something at, in Minneapolis. And I just wrote him yeah. a fan letter. I never heard back, of course, but I wrote a fan letter. And the second one was, did you ever watch Bewitched? Sure. So Agnes Moorhead, who was the uh, yeah. Esmeralda or whatever. The, the, the mother The mother, right? She's like just amazing. Yeah. So when she was real sick and dying at the end of her life, she was at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And she was in the paper. And I wrote her a letter, too, because I watched that. So I've only written two fan letters my whole life. And here, standing next to me, is my the one person, if I could have dinner with, talk to, pick their brain, tell them how much they, they mean to me. Uh, as an artist, I can literally touch them right now. And this light is going to be a while. I've at least got a minute or two. I didn't say a word. Yeah. I stare yeah. for it because it's and it, here's why. Because if I would have had a John C. Riley moment with him, right. I don't think I would have right. recovered. I don't you think you wouldn't have been able to come back from I that, couldn't right, have come back right, from right. that if he would have been rude somehow oh. and okay. 
Yeah, it's better sometimes. You know, one time I had, I I also have met a, a, because of my former job and because of my life, met a lot of celebrities, and um, I had one of those moments. Like I don't consider, I feel like I was the asshole in the John C. Riley one, mm-hmm. so this doesn't count. Okay, so I went out to dinner with Vince uh, Vaughn. Yeah. Okay, not just me. Like there's like six of us in Vince, and Vince proceeds to get plastered. Okay. Uh, of course. And after dinner, it's like some steakhouse or something. After dinner, we're all trying to take a group photo with an yeah, actual camera. And Vince is so drunk, he won't get in the picture. So I find I'm so, I'm probably drunk too, but I'm so annoyed at this point. That I'm like, just fuck. I go, just fucking get in the picture, Vince. And he goes, what did you say to me? And I was like, I just said, get in the fucking picture. Yeah. He's like, you're better than that, Bosworth. You, you don't have to swear at me. He like went off about wow. me because he was wasted. And it was humiliating for me. And also like, because I think he was drunk, it just like came out of nowhere. His vitriol was yeah. insane. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to talk to another famous person. Again. Mm-hmm. I know. It's just, it's too much. It's too, it's too yeah. much. Yeah. It's too much. Gina, going back to the question that you asked earlier about the first day and how, you know, the oh, first yeah. part, part of theater school, did you all have Jim Ostelhoff? Was he around when you were there? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Uh, hostile prof. I think it was his nickname. Yeah, right. You're going to kick yourself one day when you listen to all of our previous episodes and you know how much we've talked about all this stuff. Oh, I'm sure. So did you ever hear about the spotlight exercise? No. Yeah. So So my first, one of our first days of class, uh, when we were, I think my second year I had Ostelhoff, I didn't have him as a freshman. The upperclassmen said, oh, you have Ostelhoff? Get ready for the spotlight exercise. And I go, what's a spotlight exercise? We're all like, what's a spotlight exercise? They go, you'll find out. So it became this, this, this thing that we're terrified for the first day of class with Ostloff because of what the upperclassmen were saying, the spotlight exercise. So finally, we got a upperclassman to, we're like, what is this spotlight exercise? I have the class tomorrow, the first class with him. Just give me some some heads up on what we can expect. Are we going to die? Like, are we going to die? Gonna and they die? said, here's what the spotlight exercise is. Oh God. Uh, th- you come into class and there's a big spotlight, you know, the big machine that they use from the thing. It's in the corner sure. of the room. And what Ostelhoff does is he says, all right, so being an actor is about uh, vulnerability. It's about exposing yourself and not hiding. So we're going to start this class today, the first day with the spotlight exercise it's called. What I'm going to do is I'm going to turn all the lights off here and I'm going to turn this spotlight on and I'm going to project it on the corner of the room. And then one at a time, you're going to take your clothes off and you're going to go stand. In the, you're going to go stand in that spotlight for a full minute, starting with me. And then he takes off Wait, his clothes <laughs> and he goes, Wait, this is not real. Yeah, so, and he, and, and he would go and stand in the spotlight naked first. And then one at a time, every person would have to Wait. take their, take their clothes off and stand in the spotlight. Wait. Are you, are you, are you saying a true thing right now? I'm telling you a true thing of what I was told. Hold on. So what you were told. What? So this is the, 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 the sophomore theater student who's already heard scary stories about Ostelhoff, Hostelprof, and this exercise that I have to do with my classmates. Horrifying. (laughs) So we are the night before my roommates and we don't sleep. We're freaked out. We're getting ready for this spotlight exercise. I was like, we get in there, and of course, there is no spotlight exercise. It doesn't happen. Of course not. So then years later, uh, 
uh, Ostloff and I connect on Facebook before he, I think he, he abandoned it eventually. I'm sure he's, yeah. he's not going not to serve him well. No, right? it won't, it won't go well. So anyway, I go, we were having a private conversation. I go, dude, I have to ask you a question. I go, I yes. need the truth. It's been 20 some years. I need the truth on this thing. He goes, sure. I go, the spotlight exercise. Was that a thing? What? He would not confirm or deny it. He said, you know, in the seventies, he goes in the seventies, we did a lot of different things that we had to get rid of that we don't do anymore. And so I never got an answer of whether anything like that that happened, but oh my God. I'm sure it did because, you know, one of the things that Bob and I spent a lot of time talking about is the way that that whole system of anything goes and suffer for your art and all that bullshit. I mean, he was a part of it, him and David, you know, they were all sort of part of this. And it's not to say that it's all bad. I mean, there's, you know, plenty of good about it, but that's all, I mean, you know, people would be fired for even talking about uh, doing an exercise where they were going to make their students, you know, take off their clothes, right. much less actually. I did a production of, I did a production of Lie of the Mind. We were the first ones to do Sam Shepard's oh, Lie of the Mind. I did that play. It's a great, yeah. great play. And uh, I remember in the rehearsal, there's a scene with me and the actress and we were trying things and the director said, we're going to, he goes, took the actress outside and said, we're going to try it different. Anyway, she came back in and when I opened my eyes to start the scene, she was nude. Who was the director? You have to tell us. John Jenkins. Yeah, sure. Who I love. Who's great. Yeah, was, um, but, yeah, but, no, yeah, great. but that probably was, wouldn't go. Um, I think she was top. She was topless. No. She was topless. I don't think she was right. completely nude, but, but that was a why. Like you just didn't question anything. You were just like, I'm not. an actor. I'm going to do whatever you ask, and I'm going to be fearless, and I'm going to just take instruction, and that's it. And I, I, I wonder I, if it's when, like that now with the current environment. If no, there, no. yeah, I just felt like there were a lot of there were a lot of teachers at the time that uh, had been there a long time and were kind of stuck in their stuck in their yeah. ways. And like I had Joe Slowick. I don't know if you had Joe Slowick. Oh yeah. I got him toward the end oh, yeah. where it wasn't great. Uh, it was kind of going through the motions. He wasn't quite as sharp as I think he probably was early on. Super sweet man. Really nice. But I felt like we did spring springs awakening. We did that scene, which was his favorite where he'd weep, you know, he'd weep at the beating, whatever there, there's a beating scene or something. And I felt like, I felt like with him, it was, he had a way that the he saw the character being played and he just wanted you to play it yeah. like that versus Don Ilko yeah. who would go, all right, oh, you're going to play it different than Jen would play it or Gina would play yeah. it. And I want to see yeah. what you bring to it which I love. And I, I well, definitely took that away from well, my time. Part of the thing is too, like just thinking about now I teach at DePaul and um, Do you? over, over zoom. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's wild. <laughs> but part of the thing is to reimagine, uh, trying to reimagine what, it, what basically a conservatory is in this for today's climate for today, the needs of the students. And on top of that, then what's placed on the theater school is what I'm realizing more and more is just higher ed being at a university. So you've got many systems going on and then you have teachers that are tenured, right? So there's a whole, it's really a a higher ed is really fucked and, and the money and all the stuff. So, um, 
the theater school is part of the thing that's happening there is also stuff that's being layered on top by higher ed and right. capitalism at large. So you got a lot of things to clean up there on top of the, on top of the weirdness of old people. I mean, it, it's just a weird place. So anyway, um, but that is crazy about Jim. And I also wonder, like, have you kept in touch with a lot of people and the teachers? And it sounds like you're really active with like, do you keep in touch with your cohort from that, those times? I do talk to, I do talk to some of them, you know, it's, what's really interesting is how few are still doing theater sure. at all, at all. Right. Sure. Um, Paul Stovall, who was in my class, just won a Tony this week for a strange loop as a producer. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So he was an actor in my class. So I love seeing that. He was very, very underestimated at that school, did not get the do that he, that he should have because I don't think equity and diversity and that was, was anything anybody no, even thought about back should. then. So I, yeah. uh, if you haven't had him on, you should definitely have him on. I would love to hear okay. his his yeah. his take on, on the whole thing. But yeah, it was it was tough. It was really a hard experience. But I think it definitely here. Here's the thing I will say. So when I uh, 17, 18 years ago, I started a company called Pinnacle Performance Company with a business partner who came up with the idea. He said, "Hey, you've studied acting." All these tools and techniques that you learn as an actor, how to use your voice, your body language, how to manage your nerves, how to influence emotion to motivate action. He said, the corporate world needs that. He said, do you think you build me a program that we could go into corporations and teach people how to be confident speakers, how to run meetings, how to listen, how to show empathy? I go, yeah, man, that's all everything I spent four years learning. So we built this. He and I started it. We built this company. And we're now in 60 countries. We train on six continents. Everybody from Apple to Uber to Reddit to JP Morgan. That is so awesome. And it's all the stuff I learned at the theater school. When I was, so I wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Bullseye Principle that talks about how you can take all these acting techniques and you can bring it into your, your meetings, your presentations. I literally went back to the box of books and notes from yeah. history of dramatic literature and all these things. And I pulled things for this new book from what I learned at the theater school. And when we hire, so we have offices around the world. We have most of our people in London and here I hire a lot from Jason because I know if I'm hiring somebody who went, who graduated from the theater school, they're talented, they're disciplined, they're committed, they're sharp, they're smart, they're easy to work with. And then we do the same thing in London. There's a school called the Central School of Speech and Drama in London, which is kind of the right. uh, the DePaul Theater School of London. It's not RADA, you know, it's not right. Juilliard, but it's it's right. theater school. We do the same thing over there. We hire people from that school because I know they're committed, they're smart, they're disciplined, they can manage time, they have a vision. Right, and, and so, they need yeah. dough. They need to make dough. Right, too. right, like, exactly. So it's been fun to use. Do- Use those skills and to be able to. So before COVID, uh, you know, I'm traveling around the world. The coolest gig I did teaching all these theater school techniques to to people. I got hired by the Queen of England to uh, to train the royal household at Buckingham Palace. So I spent a day at Buckingham Palace working for the Queen, teaching the royal household about intention and objective and how to listen and how to tell a great story. Everything I learned as a playwright, as an actor for all those years, at oh, theater school, I'm teaching the Royal household. 
Well, wait, wait a minute. Wait. Now, I, oh, go ahead, Buzz. Go ahead, Buzz. Well, I was just going to say, like, what was the challenge or the problem? Why did they call you in? Like, what was the deal? So it's the same thing as any company has is communication is usually terrible. People aren't listening to each other. They're when they speak to someone, they're condescending. They don't acknowledge somebody's hard work. They can't tell a good story to save their life. Their presentations are boring. Their meetings are poorly run. It's the same thing everybody else oh, deals shit. with. Yeah. And so that's what I was coming in to try to sharpen up. Uh, but I had a day. I had one full day at the palace working working with her, her what team. What in the hell? Was that the craziest thing ever? Yeah, it was one of those moments where you think back over your career and you know, going back to that small town in Minnesota where I'm filling out the, what do you want to do as a major? I go, I guess theater. That's the closest thing of all the things, my choices. And then you end up you know, at the, at the palace working for the queen at Buckingham Palace. I mean, what the actual f- Why did you only get one day? I mean, it's because it, it, it's how it's how what what you just described sounds like maybe morale was low because people were it was there was resentments and all this kind of stuff going on. Why did they only give you one? Yeah, day? that's all they had. That's I think the plan was yeah. to do more, and then right after that, COVID happened. So that was oh, in right. November of 2019. Yeah. COVID happened, and then we're on Zoom for two freaking years. Totally, that's crazy. Totally. So, okay, do you love your work? Love it, love it. So you're happy with what you're doing. Super happy, amazing. super happy. And uh, doing this work, I can continue to hire actors and give great actors, you know, this the is... opportunity to keep working and doing some traveling the world. Mm. So, you know, all the countries you get to, I love that. But it also allows me to, I still write for, you know, theater and TV and film. I wrote a show for NBC called uh, Trial in the Delta about the Emmett Till murder trial. Oh my God. And uh, so that's coming on Peacock this summer. So I'm, I'm able to do that. Oh my gosh. And, Congratulations. Uh, yeah, yes. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's, it's really great. And my thing is I love collaboration. I love working with people who are yeah. passionate and who are really great at what they do. And so, yeah, yeah, I think that's why I was excited to be on this podcast because just listening to the two of you, the banter I mean, and the, the we, chemistry you have and, and what great interviewers you are, even though this is like, you know, almost a hundred that you've done. It feels like it's the first one, which is a sign of a great interview. Well, I we yeah, I, yeah we love people. Now, do you have people in LA that work for you? Uh, well, Denisak did before he moved oh, yeah. to a different job. Uh, yeah, I do. I don't think any DePaul. Oh, Kevin Douglas used to work for us. I don't know if you know Kevin Douglas. Oh yeah, yeah, Kevin Douglas for a yeah, long Kevin time worked Kim, for us. Yeah. Uh, what other theater school folks? Well, well just, uh, yeah. yeah, if you if you're hiring, you, you know, let, let us know because uh, we. Obviously, a lot of people, we, we meet all these great people. We 100% are, yeah. I mean, look, are hiring right now. So if you have okay, any great well, candidates. I, I will work for you. Yeah. I mean, you let, yeah. Let's you and I talk because I consult. That's what I yeah, do. Let, like, yeah, for sure. Look, look, uh, hit me up and we'll, yeah, we're definitely looking. We're definitely we'll looking for. Pinnacle performance. Pinnacle performance. Pinnacle. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, it's been a great, it's a great job. I get to use all the things that, that we studied That's at so theater school. Cool. Well, I know we're going to have to wrap up, but I want to ask, does teaching or does doing this job um, scratch your performing itch? You know, that's, that's, I appreciate that question a lot. And I would like to, I'll answer that. I'd like to hear about you, you all. So I, once I started this company, it really took up all my time. I could still be a playwright and like I have children's books published and things like that, but it's harder to be an actor, right? Because you have to go out on auditions, you have to do callbacks, you have to be there. This was before everybody was doing everything on on Zoom. I think it's changed a bit, but uh, I went almost nine years without acting. The itch is always there of, I don't miss the auditioning, but can I still do it? Do you ever have that feeling of, can I still do it? Do I still have it? And so uh, Jennifer Markowitz, I don't know if you remember her. 
Yeah. She's also someone you should have on. So she directed Never Come Morning, Hell Cab, which you know made a zillion yeah, dollars. That's her that's she was, how I know her. Yeah. She was a theater school. She went one year and then she got she got cut. She ended up going to Columbia. She and I were friends. So she had directed me in the nineties in Never Come Morning, which was just a you know big hit. It won all the Jeffs for prop theater. And then she went to London and she kind of disappeared for a lot of years. She calls yeah. me up. Um, I'm about seven, eight years into the pinnacle thing, starting this company. And she says, Hey, I'm coming back to Chicago. I'm doing a play. Do you want to audition for it? I said, no, I'm retired. I'm done, man. I've got this company. I don't, I'm traveling around. I, I can't. I said, but I'll be there opening night. She goes, okay, cool. A couple more weeks go by. I get her. I think I'm flying to China or someplace. And she reaches out and she says, Hey, in two weeks, I'll be in Chicago for these auditions. I know you said you weren't available, but I wanted to send you the script just in case. I think you might think it's cool. I go, great. Yeah, I'm retired. I don't act anymore, but sure. I'd love to, love to read it. I got time because I'm flying here to China. Sends me the script. It's called The Brig. And it all takes place in a military prison in Okinawa, Japan. A bunch of soldiers and a warden. So I'm reading this play and I'm going, holy crap. This is the reason... I went to the theater school. This is the reason I checked the box oh, to be an shit. actor. This is the, re- I don't know shit. how she's going to do this. She can't pull this. She can't possibly pull this violence and this insanity off in a play. This is why I was in theater. So I started thinking about it. And then I started to say, who do I have to get approval from to just go do this play? I just asked my wife, I go, do you care if I go do this play? She doesn't care. My business partner, I go, Hey, do you care if I audition for this play? He goes, I don't care. I call her up. You run the show, basically. I call her up and I go, I'm going to audition. She goes, really? I go, I'll audition. She goes, great. She sends me the information. So my wife was out of town, with, so I didn't have a car. Guess where the auditions for this play were? The movement room at the theater school. So I had not been to the theater school since probably maybe once or twice since graduation. So I have to print out a headshot. I have to put together a resume. I staple it together. And I get on the L, which I hadn't ridden the L in a long time because I had a car. Oh, shit. So I'm taking the L down to Sheffield or Fullerton yeah. to the L stop. I get off. I have my backpack. I'm walking to you the walk theater down. school. I felt like I'm walking back in time. Like, what is happening? Oh, my God. This is insane. And I go into that, that movement room to, to do the audition. And they have they, we do a movement part of it because they brought a, a Marine in to actually walk us through drills and see if we could take orders. It was the exact same room I did that initial audition for the theater school in. And and so it was this converging of 30 years later, this weird thing happening. So anyway, I get cast and it's a no pay. It was no pay, no contract, three months. It was like two months of rehearsal and military training. And then, you know, a month of the run, six weeks of running the show for no pay at Mary Archie. Remember the great God bless yeah, yeah, yeah. Rich Katowski and Mary Archie. It was one of the last shows yeah, they did at yeah. Mary Archie. And so I got to do this play. Alex Seeley, do you know that actor? He's a DePaul theater school grad. So he's a young guy who was in the cast. And so I got in there for the first day of rehearsal. And I told the director, please don't tell anybody I haven't acted in nine years. Please don't, seven years, whatever it was. Please don't tell them I have a company. I just want to be an actor. I just want to be like one of the cast. And, uh, I saw Alex Seeley, who's one of the cast members of the first day, he's stretching and he's got, oh, I, my, my daughter just bought me this at a thrift store, by the way. Look at that. Oh, oh, at a thrift store. At a thrift Perfect. store, yeah. Anyway, Alex Seeley had a theater school shirt like, on. this shit. And I go, yeah. are you a theater school grad? And he goes, yeah. 
And I go, yeah, me too. So we had a connection and I go, man, how long you been out? He's like, oh, a year, year and a half. I go, you are way too bitter for only having been out for a year and a half. I go, you got I'll a lot say, of time before God. you should be that bitter. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I did that play and it was great because you're rusty, but the rust shakes off. You still, all that, that totally. the, the yeah. craft of it and the ability to do it, yeah. it's there. The, the talent is still there. It's just, you have to shake off those cobwebs. I love oh it. God. I love it. It's like riding a bike. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.